Welcome to PostWave. You're here with Eric and Trevor. Today, we're going to be talking about some ideas put forward by British psychiatrist and writer Ian McGilchrist about the divided brain and the differences between the left and right hemispheres. disclaimer that we're two musicians and composers who like to talk about a bunch of topics that are sometimes slightly beyond our wheelhouse. If we say anything that's factually incorrect, or even if you just disagree with us, we really love if you send us an email at postwavepodcast at gmail.com and uh, let us know. Hey all, so just a quick announcement. Um, so we've been doing this podcast every week for almost a year now, and it's been a lot of fun. And we uh, hope to continue doing so. Uh, we we are very busy at the moment. Our summer is looking pretty balls to the wall. And so we are going to try to pare it back a little bit. We're planning to be still releasing content, uh, hoping to keep giving you guys something to think about, something to talk about. Um, and we're hoping to release an episode every other week. We'll keep you apprised as things to go forward yeah thanks so much to everyone who's listened and and followed us so far uh it's 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 really cool that we live in this world today where we have this platform that just lets us you know interact interact and and get our ideas out to as many people as we can um so we're, we're really thankful for for everyone who listens and we hope to keep giving you good things to think about in the future so left brain Eric, do you remember the first time you learned about the differences between the left and right hemispheres of the brain? Well, a uh, person who I can't identify, I remember the precise date. Really? It was January 4th, 1997. W- what happened then? I ate breakfast and then I went outside for a short walk and then I came back and studied for a while and then I ate lunch and then some people who I could not identify talked to me and then I ate dinner. <laughs> what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> Weren't you like three? <laughs> yes, yes. Uh... <laughs> 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 because you know the you, you said left brain Eric and left brain Eric um, can't uh, tell different people apart and is only concerned with the, the particular details of uh, the mundane achieving immediate tasks <laughs> it, it, interesting okay yeah good good uh. <laughs> yes and also I was three yeah <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I, for, for me, I think, I think it was in art class when I was in like fourth or fifth grade and the teacher would always say not to talk because I think talking is in your left brain. Yeah. Language is in the left brain. And apparently the argument was that creativity is in your right brain. So if you're talking, you're using your left brain and not your right brain, Hmm. which of of course it's way more, it's way more complicated than that. Yeah. 
I was really fascinated to learn in this talk just simply that the language center is not always in the in the left brain. Yeah, yeah, it is. It, it's it's more like it's it's concentrated there, right? Rather than well, he said that it. in ninety seven percent of people, it is in the left brain uh, for right handers, but for mm -hmm. left handers. Uh, like something like forty percent of people have it in the right brain. Huh, that's interesting. Yeah, and did did he say with for those people is is the normal kind of dichotomy that we'll get into between the left brain and the right brain? Like, is that does that still hold for those people? Is the right brain kind of the the kind of more the one that deals with you know more unfamiliar ter territory that kind of thing? Yeah, he seemed to be saying that the the left and right brains still had their same respective tasks. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, so so maybe we'll, maybe we'll just kind of summarize what what the main his main arguments are, and and this is all this is all kind of summarized in in this book he wrote a few years ago called The Master and His Emissary, and kind of the analogy is that the 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 right brain is the master, right? And it can kind of, it it can, it knows that it needs the left brain, to to function, but the left brain doesn't know that it needs the right brain to function, and so the left the left brain kind of deals like you were saying with very concrete tasks before it, you know, like making kind of gross differences between categories and performing quick actions and and kind of manipulating things, and. The right brain kind of deals more with nuance and specific situations, that kind of thing, and and kind of bigger bigger picture stuff. Right, it kind of sees the the systems in their entirety rather than the particular details of uh, what is at current task. Right, right, and and the way we the way we know any of this is is through experiments that that started in I think in like the the fifties or sixties. First, you know, well, even before that, I guess we had, you know, you had stroke patients who, who you could observe how, how their experience of the world changed and how their behavior changed based on whether they had a stroke in the left hemisphere or the right hemisphere, right? right. And there's, there are very big differences between people who have had strokes in, in either hemisphere. And so that was kind of the first, first wave of, of knowledge about how all this stuff worked. And then I think it was in the sixties that they did the first split brain experiments where they they sever the corpus callosum, which is the the membrane that that separates the two halves of the brain, right? And so, uh, or at least they they severed most of it. So essentially, you have two two different people, kind of in the same or two different minds within the same body, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's 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 interesting what you said about the uh, and I don't remember that part from the the lecture where you said that some people have like. 40% of their language in, in the right brain. Um, cause my understanding was that, that in these, these split brain studies, like you cannot, you cannot talk to the, the right brain. Like mm -hmm. the, the, when you're talking to the person, it's, it is their left, it is their left hemisphere that you're talking yeah, to. Yeah. So, so I think what he was saying that is, so you know that the majority of people of course are right-handed and mm -hmm. out of that majority, the vast majority, 97% do have their language center basically located in the left side of the brain mm -hmm. uh, but there are three percent of people who are right-handed 
who that language center is just in the other side of the brain. Um, and within the left-handers, there's a greater percentage have that within the within the right side of the brain. Interesting. Interesting. So you're saying in those people that the the language center is completely in the other side, or it's it's just that that's split. what he said in the talk. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, it's not that it's like forty percent over there. It's that forty percent of left-handers have the language center in the opposite side of the brain. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I think he was also saying at some point that that hands and language are very intimately connected. Like there's something about about mm. hands and language that that's very, yeah, very, they're very intertwined. Yeah. So actually, that's something that as maybe my earliest exposure to the idea of uh, the locales of your brain having an effect on your experience, because my guitar teacher told me that your tongue is very closely uh, nearby where your your fine motor skills of your hands are in your brain. And this comes up. Uh, I don't know if, Trevor, you've ever had this happen with a, a student, typically a younger student, while they're really focusing and struggling to get the thing right with their instruments. They'll like, say how I hung and like, do all sorts of weird stuff with their mouth. And and I, I was doing this one lesson. He was like, uh, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you were doing that as a kid? Yeah. yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And he, he explained it with uh, that the centers of the brain are located right next to each other. And so when you're trying to focus on one, you get a lot of activity in the other. That's That's really interesting. I mean, wouldn't you say, wouldn't you say your tongue does have fine motor skills? Cause isn't that what speech is? Totally. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so what Ian McGilchrist says is that the, uh, hand movement center of your brain is located at the same area as like language or speech. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think that's basically the same connection that, uh, my guitar teacher was talking about. Although, although it is true. So for people who don't know the the right side of your, the right hemisphere controls the left part of your body and the left hemisphere controls the right part of your body. Right. So it's actually kind of crossed. Mm-hmm. And like we were saying, language is mostly in one part of, in one half of the brain. So if, I guess if, if your language is in your left hemisphere, then your left hand maybe isn't as closely tied to language. I think he said specifically, whatever, you know, your, your dominant hand or whatever, you know, right. um, I guess for, yeah, for, for people who are, for the majority of people who have the language center in the, the left part of their brain in our right hand, then your, your left hand might not be as intimately tied to, to language. Mm. Yeah. I wonder how having the language center in the right side of your brain affects your speaking patterns. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. Or like what concepts you can vocalize easily. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I feel like we're going to learn so much more about this in the, you know, in the next 20, 50 years or whatever, I'm sure. Yeah. It's so fascinating. Uh, Such a complex system that we're learning about the the human brain. Yeah. I do kind of want to issue maybe the same caveat we, we gave when we talked about free will and, and maybe psychedelics, which is that if this stuff kind of unsettles you, then don't think about it, you know, cause, cause that some some of the ideas that we're going to talk about might be might be a little bit unsettling in terms of you know two two centers of of consciousness in the mind that kind of thing um, mm. 
and and that we're we all kind of have this this dual nature it could be it could be potentially a little bit unsettling for some people so uh yeah i think we will we both find it pretty interesting but if it, if you find it unsettling like no worries just you know don't don't think about it <laughs> okay so maybe let's start with um kind of the the general patterns we see with people who have di- strokes and strokes in different sides of the the brain so what you tend to see if someone has a left hemisphere stroke so they're they're their their right hemisphere kind of becomes dominant they they tend to get uh you know more depressed it's it's often a lot harder for them uh you know like as a person from a first person perspective um and this is this part of this is because i think the the, like i said the the left hemisphere doesn't really know it needs the right hemisphere Mm -hmm. um like it kind of just thinks it knows exactly what it's doing and jumps to conclusions that kind of thing um, mm-hmm. but the right hemisphere does know it needs the left hemisphere. And so when the left, left hemisphere is gone, uh, you know, the, often that's the language part, right. Which is, is super traumatic for people not to have, and they, it's hard for them to communicate. So that, that often results in, in depression. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, th- I think the, the right hemisphere in general, tends to be a little bit more, you know, realistic about things and kind of see things for how they are. Right, it's the part uh, with the complete model of of systems, you know, like people, you know, just everything that they you, you can see as a whole picture that that whole picture is stored on the right side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's what happens if you have left left hemisphere stroke and the, the right hemisphere is kind of dominant. In people who have a right hemisphere stroke and their left hand is is or sorry, the left side of their brain is dominant. They're often blissfully unaware that anything has gone wrong you know and and this extends to you know if you tell them to move their their hand that is is paralyzed because they've had the stroke which i guess would be their their left hand they'll they'll say they're moving it but they're not moving it right Mm -hmm. and if you if you point to their arm and ask them like whose arm is this they'll say the person in the next bed or like your arm you get lots of you get lots of uh kind of kind of spooky stuff like that happening yeah well that that's difficult to think about <laughs> yeah so real quick maybe just like a basic rundown of of how things are, are localized and again this these are not these aren't really dichotomies more they're more kind of concentrations right mm. so the the left hemisphere tends to deal, deal with explored territory positive affect activation of behavior word processing, linear thinking, detail recognition, detail generation, fine motor action. And then the right hemisphere tends to deal with operation and explore territory, negative affect, inhibition of behavior, image processing, holistic thinking, pattern recognition, and gross motor action. And again, those are kind of uh, rough rough categories, but those are kind of the, the concentrations. Yeah, wow. So um, that's really interesting because it seems like there's there's a very uh, strong theme one way and the other, right? And I guess as we'll get into later, it seems like a lot of the left brain activities are the same things that we tend to value highly in our society. You know, like who gets the high-paying tech jobs, the highly technical like uh, engineering stuff, it's it's all the fine motor control analytical thinking side of things. Interesting. Yeah, I don't I don't know about the analytical thinking part of it. And it, it is true. So this is, we'll get into this more because part of his part of Bigelcrest's argument that 
I'm, I'm a little skeptical of is this whole the left brain is ascendant in society and that's and we can blame all this you know all <laughs> this like woke uh identity politics stuff on that and, does he get into that <laughs> yeah yeah he goes down that whole rabbit hole and, and uh yeah again i don't i don't uh i don't really agree with all of that i mean i, I think it it is that that's part of his book too is kind of looking throughout history in which parts was the was the life was the right hemisphere or the left hemisphere more kind of prominent wow that's fascinating yeah uh yeah well the other thing he said the reason i i wanted to question whether the left hemisphere is doing the analytical thinking is a lot of insights from you know mathematicians and physicists kind of come to them in a flash like we've talked about through through mm. intuition mm-hmm. which they then have to explain right yeah which suggests that it came from the right side of their brain and that the left hemisphere like it was pre-linguistic right and then they they had this flash of inspiration and then the left brain had to explain mm-hmm. how it actually got there right it had to kind of yeah well figure so out what the right brain kind of came to in a, in a flash so that's really cool and this ties back into what we were talking about in the terence mckenna episode with intuition um, about how creation and ideas tend to appear spontaneously and then part of the process of of manifesting them is like explaining them and i think this ties into what miguel christ is talking about when he uh, is talking about how the right brain excels at non-explicit things, you know, like uh, metaphor, jokes, these things that if you explain them, if you flesh it out in detail, it basically loses the magic, you know? Like if you explain a joke, it doesn't, isn't funny, right? Right, right. And so those flashes of inspiration you're talking about with like like Einstein like which we mentioned in another episode where he would come up with his ideas while in this sort of flow state playing music that this sort of creative you know seeing everything in a flash uh sort of inspiration happens so this sort of like aha moment as he calls it happens you know in an instant and this insight, this inspiration is there and implicit and understood, and he would say, in the right brain. Uh, And then the whole process, he said, like, when Einstein had a breakthrough, you know, he knows it, he feels it, but he can't explain it immediately. And then the process of the, over the next, like, several months, is Einstein just trying to describe and explain that thing that he's already seen right right and you and you are probably right that that is not inherently valued in society these days you know we want we want people to be good worker bees and just be efficient at getting their you know their individual tasks done and and maybe if, if you can be a little creative cool but you know we don't we don't really need these these flashes of inspiration on like a huge scale we just need you know a few people here and there to be to be having them and, and mm-hmm. the rest of society can kind of function as it does that that's kind of the i think that's kind of the idea i think I'll, yeah think there's a, a, a strong thrust in that direction in our society and then on the other side um and then taken from another angle as well just like you know having those implicit understandings 
we don't necessarily value that experience unless it's flushed out and analyzed and broken down into its constituent parts by the left brain so that we can use it for some purpose. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think part of his argument is that about society is that we've, we've become very analytical about what things are right to do and what things are wrong to do, you know, and we're all very worried about misstepping and saying the wrong thing, you know, rightly so in a lot of situations. And we don't want to leave a lot of things up to chance about whether we implied the right thing or the wrong thing, or whether we, you know, interpreted the right thing or the wrong thing. We just want to have, we want it to be all in the open and have there be no question about, no question about how someone felt based on what we said, you know? Mm. Do you think there's value in that? And on the flip side, do you think that there's something lost in making everything explicit? I mean, I, def- I definitely think there's there's value in it because I mean, I mean, I think I think it just comes out of a curiosity about why things work the way they do, right? Mm. And I think I mean he, he made this, you know, he made this this kind of offhand comment like, oh, you know, I went to a university and saw, you know, there's this like handbook for how to date the op- you know, the other gender, and yeah. like, <laughs> oh, can you imagine not wanting to, you know, you know, date anyone unless you'd read this book? It's like, well, I mean, it is kind of like this gigantic topic that everyone's just kind of going into blind, and mm. you know, would you want to know at least a little bit about about kind of what how to maybe do it better or you know mm-hmm. what kind of the expectations of of yeah. other people might be like you know i, f- I feel like it's only going to help you um mm-hmm. as as long as you don't feel like you have to just stick, stick to it by the letter but but mm-hmm. i i do think yeah i i don't think we should just you know stop examining things and try to an- trying to analytically understand them you know right no totally and i think i think that uh parallels what he's saying that you know we do need the left side of the brain you know as as much as we uh might want to bash it as being like all the all the annoying parts of ourselves it's very effective you know it helps us navigate the world smoothly and efficiently yeah yeah and we absolutely need need both parts of our brain uh, ideally to function Mm -hmm. although although it it is it has been shown you know if if someone does have a right hemisphere or left hemisphere stroke you can recover and you know even with half of your brain completely missing you can your your brain our brains are amazing that they can kind of rewire themselves eventually to to just be totally functional with either hemisphere which is crazy wow yes the neuroplasticity right the neurons are able to rewrite their tasks to perform needed functions Mm -hmm. but yeah if and the 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 really interesting thing is that is that each side of the brain seems to have its own set of values, right? Mm. And that I th- I think he said that the right hemisphere tended to be like the 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 more intelligent one in terms of of IQ. And, but but yeah, kind of like we were saying, the, the left hemisphere values uh, kind of quick quick distinctions and and putting things into categories and and seeing things as black and white. And the the right hemisphere tends to see like the exception to the rule and you know implicit things right yeah abstractions and fuzzy non-distinct reality which is i think something that maybe we're just starting to come to an appreciation to in our society as we more more people in our society are embracing ideas from eastern traditions with uh you know like zogchen and mindfulness you know just appreciating the 
the wholeness of everything, the interconnectedness and the uh, ineffability of, of the universe. Totally, totally. Yeah, and, and it's just occurred to me now, but wouldn't you say that the left, what the left brain is doing is way more like a neural network and the right brain is, is doing something that's way dissimilar to what neural networks and, and artificial intelligence are currently doing? Whoa, yeah, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, so so I feel like every time I explain neural networks on this podcast, I, I <laughs> miss explain it because I always say that it get, you give it the inputs and the outputs and tell, tell it to find the rules, but there's lots of different kinds of neural networks, right? Um, right? So you can have neural networks that you don't say what the output is. You just give it a bunch of data and say, find the categories, right? Yeah. Um, and there, there's you know tons of other types of neural networks, but... Um, in, in, you know, in, in the model of a neural network where it's trying to classify an image as, you know, a certain animal, that kind of thing, uh, mm. it's putting them into into these uh, very well-defined categories, right? But then there are, right. like, small errors that can throw it off completely, right? Because it can, mm. like you was saying about the left brain, like, it can tell a difference between a, a bird and a dog, but it can't tell the difference between, you know, a falcon and a, a parrot or something. Right. So it... Not not that neural networks can't have you know see fine distinctions like that, but they're they're kind of set up to see these these uh, to set up these rules right rather than than like exceptions to rules and and which I guess you would call like the edge cases in right in machine learning yeah yeah that's fascinating so Trevor since we've talked about neural networks and uh, let, let's t let's touch another one of our bases. Um, so you ever have uh, experiences of failing to articulate something, you know, where you just have an idea in your head and you, you just like your mouth can't form words to it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I, I think he actually, he, this is something he actually talks with, uh, with Sam Harris about. So th there's, everyone has the, the feeling of, you know, trying to remember someone's name and you can't quite remember it. But mm -hmm. if someone asks you, is it, you know, is it Tom? You can be like, no, it's not Tom. Like you, you have, it's somewhere in your brain because you can say that it's not a specific name, right? Like, yeah. you know, it's not that name, but you can't, you know, you can't, uh, think of the name itself. Right. Right. Yeah. So this, uh, this feeling of like being unable to articulate things is something I struggle with from time to time. Just, uh, in trying to articulate this idea a minute ago, I, had like three or four false starts that we had to edit out uh, <laughs> where I just like couldn't think of like words for the idea that I was trying to say. Um, and that was just this, this sensation of uh, blockage, you know, like, a, like the, this idea is there in your mind and it just won't flow out. It's like stuck. It's like the machinery that is not oiled or something, you know? Mm-hmm. And this, this is the same feeling that I've felt acutely every time I do psychedelics. That's interesting. Yeah, because it the whole, yeah, I know exactly what you're saying because a lot of the experience is like, what the hell is happening? I'm trying to describe this like to myself and I cannot describe it to myself, let alone describe it to someone else, right? Right, but the concept is there. And so that makes me think right now, I'm, I'm maybe, maybe we can understand this in the terms that McGill Chris puts forward where you're statistically speaking for most people your uh right brain understands the concept and 
your left brain is struggling to parse that your left brain where your language center is uh, there's like a delay in between as it's as it's formulating that idea into the code that is the language mm-hmm. yeah yeah there's there's some latency there that's I, I forget if i mentioned this to you before but I've, I've been noticing this thing recently where when i when i think of something that's like a good idea or funny or something i can i can sense that like the, the time between my brain thinking of the idea and judging it as being good or funny is like stretched out in a weird way and i feel like i can i can like sense myself having the idea and then another part of my brain judging it and it's like two separate steps that are you know whoa uh, <laughs> <laughs> fucking zog chen man that all <laughs> gotta start doing that <laughs> it usually doesn't happen when i'm when i'm sober but you know oh interesting <laughs> If you're enjoying what you're listening to so far and you want to support us somehow, there's lots of ways you can do that. You can go follow us on Facebook or Instagram or visit us online at postwavepodcast.com or send us a nice email at postwavepodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on your podcasting platform of choice. We're on pretty much everyone out there. Give us a nice review if you're on a platform that supports that or a five-star rating. Thanks for listening. Yeah, so on the on the, the topic of neural networks actually uh, one thing what an interesting question to ask is why is the brain asymmetrical at all, right? Yeah. Why do we even have two hemispheres, right? And why are, why are they different? Why are they asymmetrical? And yeah. apparently the, the, the asymmetry of neural networks goes down to very, very, very simple organisms, like very primitive sea creatures, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It seems like there's something to do with asymmetrical neural networks that are, that's, that's essential to, to life or cognition or, or something, however you want to define that. Yeah. So does McChrist have a theory as to what that uh, evolutionary advantage would be? I... I forget exactly what he said, but he did, you know, certain, you know, birds and fishes have eyes on like both sides of their head. Right. So they literally have like two different views of the world. Right. And I think it has something to do with that, with they have to be able to distinguish, you know, between the two sides of themselves. I don't really know. Uh, Yeah. We we understand so little about how the the brain processes information. I don't don't think we know a lot yet about why Hmm. a, a symmetrical neural network would, would be better suited to, to like piloting a living being but mm-hmm. yeah it's it's a really fascinating observation so i i remember in his talk in the topic of birds and fishes he was talking about so they did an experiment where they would show a predator like on one side like on the left side it might be it might be backwards it might be on the right side and they would uh the the, the animal would always check it out preferentially with the uh with one of one particular eye you know mm-hmm. statistically i forget if it's the left or the right but they they would favor you know the sh- show the predator on one side show the predator on the other side and as a whole they would all favor the probably probably the right eye which is connected to the left eye wouldn't that make sense because it's like trying to identify is this a predator 
right eye would just connect to the left hemisphere. Yes, that's what I meant to say. <laughs> yeah, so that there's there's interesting, interesting data like that. But so I I had an idea from his talk about what is the evolutionary advantage of having this dichotomy of one brain and the other? Because like that example there with the animal, that would even imply that maybe it's you know less evolutionary uh, uh less adaptive to have the the split right because like if the predator appears on your bad side and you have to like turn around to look at it with the other eye to make sure it's a predator that's like time lost right yeah yeah well well actually one thing he was talking about with relation to that is actually animals need two different kinds of attention right so you need mm-hmm. like the very focused attention. It's like, I'm eating this thing. I'm focused on this thing that I'm eating. And then you need this kind of broader attention that is looking out for predators or, you know, right. look, basically listening for, you know, uh, twig snapping or whatever, uh, that kind of thing. That's kind of keeping its awareness open. Mm-hmm. And the, the kind of focused attention is in the, the left hemisphere, which is, is filtering out, you know, like 97% of, of things just focusing on the 3%. Right. And then, the right hemisphere has this more open kind of attention that that focuses on on everything else basically so fascinating so there's different tasks that require a different perspective of the world yeah 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 the the other thing to keep in mind too is uh it, it's different uh, like i was saying you know birds some some birds and some fishes have eyes that are completely on opposite sides of their heads right so the the right and the left eye see completely different things and you know in that case the the right eye is is uh like the right visual field is is taken in by the left hemisphere and vice versa right but Mm -hmm. for humans and animals that have both eyes on the front of their head it's literally like the 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 left brain is seeing the right half of the right eye and the right half of the left eye and the right brain is seeing (laughs) the left half of the left eye and the left half of the right eye okay wow interesting yeah (laughs) okay that's that's really interesting (laughs) yeah uh so so going back to these these uh split brain experiments and and experiments with uh you know people who've had had strokes if you if you um like ask them to draw draw a clock they'll Mm. put you know put all the numbers on one side of the the clock whoa kind of thing wow (laughs) It's so wild. It's like if you have a like a, a program or something and you glitch it up and like the ways it behaves and like you know you expect it not to work right, but then like like that is like seeing really weird spontaneous artifacts that like I wouldn't expect that to happen if if you fucked with the brain in that way. The other the other interesting thing is that you know if if someone's doing that they in order to draw the numbers on the right side of the paper, they have to know where the middle of the paper is, right? And in yeah. order to do that, they have to know where the left side is. So there, there's some there's some very strange uh, there's some very strange things going on with like the brain has the information, but it's just not you know processing it in the or it's mm. it's not the person is not consciously aware of it as much. And I think I think maybe I mentioned this already, but this this kind of these kind of weird things that are happening they they tend to to kind of mend over time. As someone as someone just you know continues to live with the the condition 
they they will tend to to not have have these very very strange phenomenological experiences where you know they they think they're think their arm is someone else's or the only they only see that the the right half of the page um uh I, I mean there are other there are other experiments where i'm, I'm trying to remember the, the specifics so okay so so in, in someone who's like a split brain patient um you can ask them to reach out and grab an object with their uh with their left hand and then you can ask them <laughs> So if you're grabbing the object with your left hand, right, it's your your right brain grasping the object. Yeah. Um, and so then if you ask them, why did you pick up that object? So you're asking in their left brain, which is the, the language center, right? They mm. will just confabulate some explanation that doesn't have anything to do with, you know, the person having asked them to pick up the object, right? They'll just say, they'll, they'll say something else, right? Mm-hmm. And so that that kind of illustrates the, the, the like, the, the jumping to conclusions or the, you know the um the putting things into categories you know kind of the the quick and dirty nature of the 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 left brain that it'll it'll just kind of assume it'll assume it it knows what it's doing and kind of just forge ahead yeah it's like you know it yeah you're right it's totally like our neural network artificial intelligences because it's like we were talking about it's coming up with an answer you know you ask it a question it outputs an answer whether it's nonsensical or not it's going to come up with something mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's it's probably not going to tell you it, it doesn't it doesn't know yeah whoa <laughs> <laughs> i think you're really onto something with it that uh our artificial neural networks much closely much more closely mirror the left brain functionality without the mm-hmm. right yeah, yeah, I'd be really curious to to know how like the neuron architecture differs between the 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 two parts of the brain. Yeah, um, and and we we keep saying they're divided. It's not like there's no information shared. Um, it's basically so the corpus callosum, which which separates the two brain regions. Basically, there's there's uh the the two brain regions regions are just much less connected between each other than they are between themselves, right? Like yeah, there's, there's way yeah, more connections yeah. within a within a hemisphere than to the other hemisphere and that the uh structure of that he says as well is more about limiting information from the right brain to the left brain as opposed to letting it through right right yeah some somehow the the inhibition of of information is is making our brain work the way it does yeah so one other thing he said that I thought was really fascinating, going back to how one eye is perceiving, uh, perceiving in a different way than the other eye, and it's, you know perceiving different qualities, different things, um, basically perceiving a different world, and he just kind of tosses in there casually that oh and by the way because the perceiver is inseparable from our experience that it is literally creating or literally experiencing a different world like create like it is in a different world in a very literal sense interesting but it would it would be like the because remember each eye is not like correlated to one side of the brain it's like they're both correlated to both parts of the brain right yeah for different regions but yeah that there are 
yeah, you could, this starts to get to the kind of spooky stuff. You can, you can start to wonder if maybe there are like islands of consciousness in the brain that, that your conscious awareness in the moment doesn't encompass. Yeah. Like what, what the hell does that even mean? Yeah. And then like on the conceptual level of like creating worlds as you see them, that would just be like, uh, an external entity. It would be like, a some, some other creature experiencing an entirely different world than you, but right inside your brain. Yeah. And it could, and it could be, it could be something that, that merges with your consciousness at certain times and then breaks apart. Like it's probably, mm. it's probably very dynamic, right? Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like you've ever had an awareness of such an entity? I don't, I don't think so. I mean, unless, unless you, unless you take my example of like having an idea and then realizing it, that it's good or something like mm -hmm. may, maybe, but I, I, I think that's, I think that's just, you know, just different parts of your brain. I mean, I think, I think the idea is to it's, you, right? Yeah. I think the idea is it's impossible to know, right? Because if you're not aware of it, you're not aware of it. Mm -hmm. and but then i guess i guess the awareness would come then if you're not aware of it and then you change so that you become aware of it um, i would say that i might have experienced something of the sort when in a phase of deep introspection you know i was i was in a place where i was just like of extreme self-analysis you know facing uh, in my mind, I framed it as like facing the void, facing the dark, seeing what is there, you know, in nothingness. And I had an experience a few times that was really kind of nerve rattling of looking into myself, into nothingness and seeing something looking back. Is this is this in a mirror or is is this no like like uh, conceptually in the mind? Wow, uh, yeah, that that sounds like a very very spiritual meditative experience. Uh, mm. Could you say could you say more about it? I mean, it was very very kind of spooky because it was like this sense of complete isolation, or you you know you think you are this entity and you are alone in here and then you look and you look to where there should be nothing and like you have this space this concept of space in your mind of emptiness you keep looking and if there's something you keep looking deeper until you look to the place where there's nothing and when you look there and look and you see you see an entity, an awareness. Um, it's like an awareness of a perception, and that perception is perceiving you. Wow, is this is this in a mirror or is is this no like like uh, conceptually in the mind? Wow, uh, yeah, that that sounds like a very very spiritual meditative experience. Uh, mm. Could you say could you say more about it? I mean, it was very, very kind of spooky because it was like this sense of complete isolation or, you you know, you think you are this entity and you are alone in here and then you look and you look to where there should be nothing and like you have this space, this concept of space in your mind 
of emptiness. You keep looking, and if there's something, you keep looking deeper until you look to the place where there's nothing. And when you look there and look and you see, you see an entity, an awareness. Um, it's like an awareness of a perception, and that perception is perceiving you. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I also just wonder if it's like on the surface when we're just thinking and, and it, we're so used to it, we don't, we don't notice. Right. Cause, cause I, this is something I've been thinking about a lot recently. Like what, what is, what is thinking and like, what is actually going on in your brain when you're talking to yourself in your head. Right. Mm -hmm. And if your left hemisphere is the one with language, then is your left hemisphere talking to itself or is your left hemisphere talking to your right hemisphere? You know? Hmm. Wow. When you, when you think in your head, do you, do so in language i i do i mean not, not all the time but i yeah i mean i i tend to have except for when i'm when i'm consciously consciously trying to not to not to if i'm you know meditating or, or practicing or just trying to focus on something then i tend not to have a or try not to have a dialogue but yeah in, in general there there is some kind of internal monologue going most of the time that's interesting i've i've gone through phases where the monologue is there and i've gone through phases of actively silencing that monologue you know like in in self-mindfulness practices of trying to uh, work through anxiety and depression you know like we talked about that monologue is very active and with some fair amount of success I have been able to silence that monologue and what's left after that is just kind of a mode of thinking where it's an awareness, a connecting of thoughts, and uh, kind of an implicit understanding, except um, without words fitted to it. That's yeah, that's that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm always trying to cultivate less less uh, less self talk in my in my mind, I guess, or at least make it mostly positive. Because I think for, this is probably probably true for most people. Like it tends to be kind of negative. Mm. Well, that's interesting, huh? Yeah, if it's if it's an overactive, uh, vocal pattern of thought uh, made with language, then maybe it would have a tendency to be negative because, in order for it to be so vocal, there has to have been an imbalance. What do you mean by an imbalance? Like uh, an ascendancy of the left brain, as McGillicrist would put it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I mean, maybe so. Just a, a not healthy state of being an overactive default mode network. Yeah, yeah, that, that's really interesting. But so, so another interesting thing I've noticed in terms of uh, these concepts arising without language is that they often take the form of physical shapes in space. You know, abstract, abstractly represented forms that take on shape and interact in certain ways with motion. And this is really fascinating to me that that is the model that takes over when language goes away, because I think that that is implicitly like the nature of existence, because that's, that's what we experience physically. <laughs> yeah. You mean at its root existence is, is more, more a physical phenomena than, than kind of a, mental linguistic phenomenon 
Yeah, because like ideas are represented in the physical world, and one way that they are is you know like with these complex structures in our brain, and, uh, and but that's kind of an abstraction of the idea. It's like a language. It's formed out of a material, a substrate. That being the the structure of your brain, and that if you go down to the core. Like the most accurate way to represent any idea, it uh like let's say for example a tomato, the most accurate representation of a tomato is a physical object that is a tomato, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. Well, isn't that kind of the whole idea that language is imperfect? Yeah. Uh huh. Like Terrence McKenna talks about. Uh, language is always an abstraction from the truth yeah and and he also says it's it's a double-edged sword because you can use it to make very very fine distinctions but in the end those distinctions are can kind of be a hold up to actually understanding what's going on or or kind of appreciating the the connectedness of everything you know and those those distinctions when you put them together don't ultimately don't add up to the whole there's some there's something that's missing yeah, I think that's that's something that McGillchrist talks about a lot is the is the the sum the whole not being exactly a sum of its parts. There's some there's some mm. holistic element that you miss if you just look at the little the the you know, the bit by bit breakdown of everything. Yeah, definitely. That that big pattern picture that the right brain provides is a necessary aspect to understanding our our existence. Another thing I've noticed in uh ideas emerging uh and with language is when i'm thinking in a foreign language i studied spanish in school and i uh you know went several years without speaking it and then i went on a trip in europe and i spent a day i was in france but i was on my way to spain and i knew that and i was spending a day hanging out with this uh, Moroccan lady who speaks Spanish uh, natively. And so I was, you know, we were mostly conversing in English, but every once in a while just uh, como se dice, you know, this word that I forgot. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I noticed that in my mind, thoughts and like sentences that I was going to say or uh, uh, just thoughts that were forming language were arising simultaneously in English and in Spanish but that led me to an awareness that the thoughts existed as like this protean entity distinct from either of those languages that's crazy that's crazy yeah you're, you're totally right yeah, I've never, I, I, you know, I took German for like three years in high school and, and kind of put it down after that for the most part. And yeah, never, no, I've never had that experience. Thanks. Thanks, American educational system. <laughs> <laughs> yep. But uh, yeah, it's really, I, I wonder, I wonder if we'll ever get to a understanding about what that actually is in the brain within our lifetimes. Like what is, what is that? that protean language and if we had if we had an accurate enough snapshot of the brain state could we 
could we understand that well enough to mm. to not need like human language jeez yeah wow what if we could create a technology that would be more efficient than our left brain in uh conveying one idea to another system. yeah yeah it's definitely well i actually i don't know theoretically possible i would imagine but maybe not practically practically possible nanobots in the brain man <laughs> <laughs> it's coming yep kind of a tangent but they're 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 like uh i the, neuralink has been really hyped up but there are a lot of debates on on how how much it's, it's actually going to accomplish and like a lot of the things like they, they had this you know whole demo with with monkeys playing pong with their minds which like has already happened like we've been able to do that for like six years mm -hmm. and uh and so it's 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 kind of uh kind of some smoke and mirrors stuff going on i think i mean you know they're they're doing it kind of in a new potentially better way but the yeah i think that the promise of it at least in the near term has been been way way overhyped yeah i guess guess we'll find out <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah who knows i'm not super uh super looking forward to having the expectation socially that we have microwave emitting things implanted or like glued to our our skulls <laughs> yeah yeah no i mean i i'm yeah, it's good to be good to be cautious. Yeah. They actually have uh so there's this other brain computer interface company called Kernel that is is non-invasive, so it's just like a helmet you wear mm -hmm. and it uses visual light to tell which parts of your brain are getting less or more oxygen based on the color of your blood and then it can tell things based on that, which mm. is crazy. Interesting. So, so it's it's more about reading though than, uh, than writing. From what I understand, although I think there's, yeah, I, I think there might also be some kind of uh, transcranial magnetic stuff happening, but I forget I forget the details. Mm. I think that I think they do they do have the potential to be able to go both ways. That's scary. <laughs> I don't want it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to be first in line, but I think it is. <laughs> it is it is really exciting if we, if we can figure out how to make it work and make it safe. Yeah, and like trust the the systems that are giving us the helmets. <laughs> yeah. So one thing about the the right hemisphere that I definitely wanted to talk about before we finish is this thing that can happen called uh, pseudo philosophical thought disorder. Hmm. And this this can often happen in people with schizophrenia where they they're saying things that on the surface sound like they might be very, very deep. And mm. then you listen to them and, and kind of analyze more what they're saying. And you're like, no, that, that like it, it, it's maybe, you know, just, it just sounds that way, but that there's not really any substance to what they're saying. And, mm. and that kind of gets to the, the confabulatory nature of, of the left hemisphere. Like I was talking about, like it can, it can make up all these very complicated explanations for things, but they're not really based on, based on reality. Mm. Wait, so this is a, a right brain disorder, so it's coming is it it occurs when there is a disorder in the right brain or Yeah, so if if there's right hemisphere damage, the left brain will kind of produce these pseudo philosophical thoughts gotcha. that that sound very profound but are, don't really have any any substance to them. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah. I think yeah, in in kind of a similar vein, people can uh 
perceive other people as zombies or just develop like a like you know they'll have the i guess the the solipsism uh Mm. kind of perspective that you know they're the only one who's actually perceiving uh reality that kind of thing yeah the and 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 as well in that vein the i think the dunning kruger effect is uh relevant here as well you know just like jumping to oh yeah i know the answer you know (laughs) yeah yeah and yeah, there are lots of really specific ones. Like people have the the feeling that everyone they know has been ex- replaced with an exact copy. Mm. Like they're all they're all aliens or imposters or or something. Mm. Which of course is like really really sad. Like I would not want to you know I would not want to be in that in that position at all. Oh, of course, yeah. yeah. But yeah, I, I think I think all this stuff kind of much like psychedelics gives you a much more realistic sense of how much of our reality is based on the way we're perceiving it. If that makes sense, like Mm. things aren't as objective as they seem. They're more of a product of, of the way our brain is functioning and our, our evolution has aligned our brains. I think, well, we've discussed this before, but evolution has aligned our brains for the most part to seem to seem to be in line with quote unquote reality, whatever, whatever that is. Mm. Um, but it's a very tenuous relationship, right? If you throw, if you throw one thing out of whack, it'll, your entire perception of reality could become warped, warped a little bit. And that, that tells us something about how our, our brain is creating that reality in the first place. Yeah, it's like, uh, maybe, so maybe it's, uh, an adaptive evolution evolutionary form because uh we have these two varying perspectives on the on the universe that are sort of at opposite poles and to have any sort of dichotomy like that where you see one thing and the opposite is in some ways an understanding of the whole scope of the space in between the two poles and so the fact that we're wired to have two uh, disparate poles means that by having these two different perspectives, we're shaping a more in-depth understanding of the world. And so a, m- a more accurate image, or, or if we're generating that world, then a, r- a richer world. Yeah, I think yeah, we 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 do kind of need the the whole spectrum to to get at the the dichotomy, right? Is that kind of what you're well, saying? Well, actually, kind of the opposite. That if you have the dichotomy, that it implies the spectrum. Oh, okay, right. It's like setting flags in the sand. It's saying this is one side and that's the other side, and now you have the the line in between them is just there. You, you know. Yeah, yeah. I think I think I see. I think I see what you mean. I, I think that does kind of connect. I, I do want to at least touch on the. The, um, the the points Miguel Chris makes about like modern politics and society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's really, really fascinating. <laughs> yeah, and and of course, I mean this this is why he's well. I mean, it's the, the subject matter is, is fascinating no matter what. But you know he's he's you know he's made the rounds with like Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris and uh, mm. all those people, and you know all the people who are who are criticizing, uh, kind of modern social justice mentality. And a lot of the things these people will say is like, oh, you know, why, 
like breaking things down into categories is such like a, a silly way to look at the world. Like, why would you want to, you know, put things in boxes and categorize them and, you know, you know, uh, base your identity on or, you know, base your self-identity on whether you fit into one of these categories or not, that kind of thing. And I mean, wait, who, who's saying that the, the, like, for example, uh, LBTQ, like, w- would you say that people in that sort of, uh, community would be breaking things down into categories or they would be saying, why would you want to break things down into categories? No, the, the people who are saying, why, why would you want to break things down into categories are like the Sam Harris's and the Jordan Peterson's and the Ian McGillchrist of the world. Hmm. Uh, they're like, you know, why, why do you get so obsessed with all these categories? You know, can't you just, you know, uh, we're all individuals and yada, yada, yada. And, uh, like I see, I see the, I see the point they're trying to make, but, but, uh, I, you know, it, it's, it's like, you've heard of the idea of intersectionality, right? Uh, what, what is that? So it's, it's, you know, we, we have all these different, uh, groups of people that are historically oppressed, right? So yeah. right, racial minorities, right? Uh, uh, like you're kind of talking about, uh, LGBTQ, uh, people who have been, you know, oppressed because of their gender, sexuality, uh, you know, people who are disabled uh, mentally or physically, that kind of thing. There, there are all these, all these groups that, uh, that have been historically oppressed and a lot of people belong to more than one. Right. So mm. you kind of intersectionality is basically just saying if you, if you, if you belong to more than one of these historically oppressed groups you're going to have issues and and hardships that are that are not like immediately reducible to just the two categories and you know we have to we have to think about it that way mm-hmm. and so that that's kind of where the splitting people up into um into categories comes from and it's also it's also the idea you, you can't you can't know someone else's experience completely yeah, if they're right. if they're to you know like for example you know I cannot know what it's like to be to be uh, a black woman, right? Because I, no matter how hard I I, no yeah, no matter how much I read or try to think about it or whatever, like I you know, the only way you can know what that's like is to be that person mm-hmm. uh, for a hundred percent of their life, right? And that's that that's kind of why the the categories get put there is because their experience is so radically different that you it's it's very hard to for you to come to any conclusions about about things involving that person does that does that make sense yeah totally totally i i i so i guess i just got a a little mixed up though all that's totally 100 percent valid as well i've also heard the sentiment from people uh specifically talking about like sexuality you know that uh for example gender is a meaningless construct you hear that phrase uh, tossed around a lot. Uh, sexuality is not a dichotomy. It's not. Uh, it's not even just like a linear scale. It's like a whole space of things you can be. It's like uh, fluid at times. And so, uh, you know, there's there's as well the idea that labels are inhibitory and uh, that a over-reliance on labels is part of what's wrong with society and that we need to embrace people for their individuality regardless of what those labels might be yeah yeah totally totally that that's definitely 
definitely an argument you, you'll hear people make. And I think, I think part of that is so, so people, you know, within the IDW sphere will, will point to that, I think as being like a contradiction within the whole social justice mentality of, you know, wanting to be people, wanting to have people be treated as individuals and not wanting any categories mm-hmm. of, you know, strict, strict categories of, of sexuality or gender or anything like that. But then at the same time, talking a lot about, you know, uh, how people in different races are, are oppressed differently and putting, you know, putting people in, into those kinds of categories. Mm-hmm. And it is, yeah, I think it's, it's kind of a, a balancing act. And, uh, right. I, I don't think, yeah, I don't, I don't think that that contradiction really holds as much weight as, as people who are critical of, of social justice, uh, say it does. Like, I think, you know, they're, mm-hmm. they're kind of like two, two different things. I mean, and, and with, with gender and sexuality, I think, uh, uh, well, here, if I can jump in here real quick. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's like these two different ways of looking at the world, right? The, the categorizing and the non, and, you know, as, as we've been talking about all episode, you know, having both of those perspectives together creates a, a richer image of the world and, you know, a more accurate representation of what's going on. Yeah. And the, it, the, the plate. Oh, go ahead. Oh, and, and, and that it's just a balancing act between keeping, keeping both of those in perspective. Yeah. Yeah. The, the place where I, I think I, I see his, his criticism having a little bit more weight is, is within the, the context of social media which I think is I think is very very intimately connected to to the way politics have have kind of developed over the last 10 15 years. Mm-hmm. Um and I think I've said this before but it's you know an unprecedented situation in all of human history that the way that we're interconnected right now and the way information is being shared between people and I do think that the tendency to, to like categorize things immediately and sharply uh you know, in terms of like, oh, this is an awful thing the other side did, or this is a good thing our side did, you know, um, that, that, that is where I see the, the, the left brain kind of, uh, becoming over, overactive because it, it, it kind of pushes people to see, I, I think it does kind of push people to see, push people towards being more pol- polarized on either, either side. Like, I think it's kind of acting equally on both sides. Yeah, definitely it is less nuance, less appreciation for uh, the intangibility of things or, or the uh, non-duality of things. Yeah, or even just, just the, the the potential nuance that, that could be there, you know? Yeah, yeah, Or the, yeah. the exception to the rule, that, that kind of thing. Yeah, totally. But, so, so yeah, so this is, I think, a, a, definitely you're right, that's a really prominent way in which this... Uh, uh, idea of left uh ascendancy is is valid and he had like a whole list like leaving aside the whole criticism of social justice warriors which he does he doesn't really mention in this talk um everything else you know it's just like kind of spooky how spot on uh, every observation he makes how closely it, it matches like the behavior you would expect from someone who's left uh who's operating from their left side of the brain yeah yeah i I definitely i definitely think he's onto something with how with how the the two parts of the brain have have played out in human history Mm -hmm. i think yeah i I think he he might just be 
seeing what he wants to see being like an older white English dude, you know, up in his ivory tower. You mean with the social justice, justice warrior stuff? Yeah. 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 Oh. yeah. But leaving that aside, all, all the other stuff he said seemed really, really spot on. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess to wrap up one more thing I wanted to talk about, which I think we've, we touched on a little bit, which is, uh, just the, the the relationship between music and speech, right? Yes. And he says that music is capacity for language without language. Yes. Yeah, that's yeah. basically exactly what we were talking about in our recent episode when we were uh, touching back again on Terrence McKenna's uh, origin of language concept. Yeah, yeah. And he says that, that, that part of the reason that he thinks language developed from music is that music has a, in general, like a simpler syntax, mm-hmm. especially if it's kind of, you know, f- folk music with, with melodies that are easy to remember, easy to remember and repeat. He's maybe like a, a pretty limited scale mm-hmm. and that, that musical communication is, is a really important part of, of growing up and being a mother and being a child because the, before the child can understand language, they understand the, how the mother's voice sounds and and, you know, what they're, what they're trying to impart just through their, their, uh, you know, through the pitch of their speech, that kind of thing. Yeah. That's really fascinating. And, and I think heartening as well, just to have this corroboration that music is not, you know, uh, I mean, that, there's another thing like our, our society doesn't value music, you know, yeah. Music funding is just like crap. Music is like an elective in school. It's not one of the, the core classes yeah yeah and and music permeates everyone's lives pretty much but no one values it as much as they should or not most people do not (laughs) i guess he's on to something there (laughs) (laughs) yeah this uh ties back in again as well to my my idea that music is the the concept of language it is uh spontaneous uh self-consistent self-referential system of of like ideas yeah yeah and i think kind of kind of like we were talking about with the hands and language being intimately tied i think from from the this perspective of split brain things i think playing a musical instrument is just such an amazing thing i mean Mm. yeah maybe not maybe not something like the trumpet where you're you're basically just (laughs) using one hand but you know piano or guitar or violin or any anything clarinet would anything where you're using both your hands you know um, the, I mean the, the, yeah, just the, the crazy system between both the, the parts of your brain and, and your fingers and your memory is just a, that it's just like a beautiful, beautiful thing, you know? Yeah. The coordination, the, the symphony of it, you know, <laughs> that's a good place to leave it. Yeah. Well, that was a really fascinating talk and I'll be thinking about that for a long time. Yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah.
Yeah, she's a good, 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 she's a good,